Well, Augustine, the, the great 4th century figure, Augustine famously said of the two Testaments, he said that the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. So to expand just a bit, the realities of the new covenant in Christ are concealed. They're really there, but they're concealed in the Old Testament. Right? And the realities which are in the Old Testament, but hidden, are unveiled and brought out into the light in the New Testament. And so it is with the Holy Trinity. It is really there in the Old Testament, but there's a certain veiling, right? It's there, but it's shadowy. The roots are there. The, the embryonic form of the full-orbed reality is present. Right? But of course, the full measure, the full flowering of the Trinity is something that's given to us by the revelation of God in Christ. We've already looked at that in this series, and thus we see it fully in the New Testament scriptures. All right, so just to, just to clarify, we are not saying, we are not saying that the Trinity itself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we are not saying that the Trinity did not exist in the Old Testament. God has always and only been the triune God. Right? God has always and only been the triune God. God himself does not change. He doesn't develop. What we are talking about is the revelation of his inner being and life. And that revelation, that revelation comes to us in stages. Right? In short, we affirm what is called progressive revelation. That is, we affirm revelation, which, in the Old Testament at least, comes gradually, it comes slowly, incrementally, across many centuries, and it accumulates. And thus, this leads us to see the Bible as a single organic book, not just a hodgepodge of religious ideas, but a single organic book with a plot that tells a single story that reaches its apex in the glory of God revealed in Christ, the one in whom all the promises of God are yea and amen. It's just a simple classical way of understanding the scriptures. So I think an analogy might be helpful here for thinking about the Trinity in the Old Testament. Think of, think of the Old Testament as a furnished room. Like, all the furniture's really in the room. Or at least all the stuff to make the furniture's in the room. Like, we are not projecting the Trinity back into the Old Testament. The chairs, the tables, the raw materials, they're really there, but the room's not fully lit. Right? You see, the room is dark and shadowy. And the light of the New Testament helps us cast back light so that we can see the arrangement of the furniture, which was always there, but we needed the light to help see it more clearly, to see it in the right proportion. So it's a lot like reading a novel, right, and getting to the end, 
where everything is disclosed and revealed and realizing now you can go back, you can reread the book, and you can see things more clearly. Maybe even pick up on some new things, clues you missed on your first read. Now, a caveat, there's a danger here of going back and seeing the Trinity everywhere. Like Once you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So every threefold anything is like, look, the Trinity. That's not reading. That's plundering, right? We don't do that. So caution is required. We should not project back furniture or its arrangement that's not really in the room. So that being said, our topic this morning is the first half of Augustine's aphorism. We are looking at how the new, meaning the Trinity, lies concealed in the old. In short, we're looking at the Trinity in the Old Testament. There's lots of ways to do this. We're going to do it under three points. Creation, Theophanies, and Messiah. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. Creation, Theophanies, and Messiah. The beginning, basically. Then sort of the history of God's revelation to Israel. And then the culmination in the Messiah. So first, the creation. The God who creates has about him a certain plurality from the very beginning. By that I mean uh, there's an indication that that he's more than a simple kind of flat oneness. Whatever kind of monotheism we see in the Old Testament, it's a wild monotheism. Note a couple of things. First, the very name of God, the prominent chief name, Elohim, is a plural noun. Now, by itself, that might not mean anything significant. But in Genesis 1, when it comes to the creation of man, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, etc., That's three plurals in one verse. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. The very least we have to say here is somehow the creator is plural. Now again, again, caution is needed. Some scholars point out that God could be speaking of his angelic court, of himself and his hosts. That that could be the us here. But in reply, we note that angels do not create. And men and women are not made in the image of angels. It's also said that the us, right, let us create, could be what is called a plural of majesty. Kind of like the royal we. Like you might say, well, let us be moving on, and you're just talking about yourself. Sometimes this kind of plural does not indicate multiple persons. It's a plural to highlight the dignity and the majesty of God. That's possible. But that usage is very rare. So I mention these objections, again, just so we will be sober. We don't want to jump to the answers that we want to see in the text. 
So that being said, I still think this plurality, this let us make, points us toward the Trinity, toward real plurality in God. Think of how this narrative goes. You have us and our in Genesis 1. And this us appears later in Genesis 3, 22. After the fall of Adam, we read this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Or Genesis 11, at the Tower of Babel incident, God says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language. Finally, in Isaiah 6, the prophet says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? The one God who creates is in a profound way an us. But there's more. We read this morning, Genesis 1-1, that God created the heavens and the earth. But it turns out in the next two verses that God did this in such a way that his spirit hovered and his word was spoken. His spirit hovered and his word was spoken. Now, we're not claiming that Moses thought of these as distinct persons. But at the very least, at the very least, there's a threefold, a triadic pattern visible in the creation of the world. You have God, you have his word, you have his breath. And it's not just in Genesis 1. Right? We're not just cherry picking a text that's sort of maybe you know, on the margins. Listen to Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. There is the Lord, there is his word, there is the breath of his mouth. His word or his wisdom is clearly the instrument by which God creates. You can see this, for example, famously, a a disputed text going all the way back to the 4th century in Proverbs chapter 8. Famous passage which personifies the wisdom of God. That it, by that I mean it poetically speaks of wisdom as a person. Right? These are personified attributes. The way you might say, um, her goodness follows her everywhere and you know, lights up the room she walks into or something like that. Right? Goodness is almost being treated like it's a person. So you get that with wisdom in Proverbs 8. This personified wisdom was with God, and it was a partner with God in the creation of the world. So alongside with the word or the wisdom of God, the spirit also creates. For example, Job 33 says this, The spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Or famously, Psalm 104, when you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. God creates by word and spirit. The us that is God has a threefold structure that shines forth from the beginning in the very act of creating. Again, that's not the full orb doctrine of the Trinity. But it's also not nothing. It's the embryonic stuff. It's the furniture in the room. The second point, then, is theophanies. A theophany is just an appearance or a revealing of God. And so here I want to focus on how God reveals himself through angelic visits, 
You know, but especially, especially by that strange and mysterious figure known as the angel of the Lord. And there are a slew of incidents here. Right? Again, whatever we want to say about this form of this, this monotheism, right? It's a, a wild monotheism thronging with mediators. So let's just look at a couple of incidents. Genesis 16. There's a figure called the angel of the Lord. This figure finds a despondent Hagar and speaks to her tenderly as only God could and says this to her. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And then the angel says, the angel actually prophesies the future history of Ishmael with whom Hagar is pregnant. And Hagar acknowledges that this is God himself addressing her. The text says she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. Now notice, the angel, angel just means messenger, the angel or the messenger of the Lord. Notice the preposition, the angel of the Lord is the Lord. And yet the very title might suggest that he's not to be absolutely without remainder identified with the Lord. Otherwise, we could simply just call the figure the Lord, not the angel or the messenger of the Lord. So we have in this figure an overlap of identity between the angel of the Lord and the Lord, and just a hint of distinction as well. Then in Genesis 18, there's this remarkable account of a visit to Abraham. The text says, The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So the Lord appears to Abraham as three men. They have a meal, and the Lord speaks and predicts that Sarah will have a son. And then the men leave. And they arrive at Sodom, and when they arrive at Sodom, they're angels. The passage blurs the boundaries between the men, the angels, and the Lord. This is a passage that fascinated the rabbis. It fascinated them with what one scholar called its mysterious oscillation between the characters. Are these men? Are these angels? Are these the Lord? They, They keep changing. Later, we're only in the book of Genesis now. Genesis 22, as he's about to sacrifice Isaac, it's the angel of the Lord who calls from heaven to Abraham and speaks with the very authority of God himself, reiterating the promises to Abraham of blessing and offspring. But perhaps my favorite encounter is the encounter between Jacob and this figure in Genesis 32. Strange and enigmatic, this is where Israel becomes Israel. This encounter here is critical. Here, Jacob wrestles with a man until daybreak. I played basketball in high school in the winter, so I wasn't on a wrestling team. But we did have to wrestle in gym once, and I'm telling you, about 45 seconds of wrestling is exhausting. These guys are wrestling all night long. Jacob wrestles with a man all night long until the sun comes up. And the man who will not reveal his name to Jacob, 
does what only God can do. He blesses Jacob. He changes Jacob's name to Israel, which, by the way, means one who strives with God. And Jacob says this, I have seen the face of God and lived. This is the God of Israel in human form. And a little later, there's a famous encounter at the burning bush. It's the angel of the Lord who appears to Moses, and yet it is God who speaks to him from out of the bush, and that God identifies himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And a generation later, on the brink of entering the promised land, a figure called the commander of the army of the Lord appears to Joshua as a man. This is in Joshua 5, I believe. And you know what Joshua does? He worships him. And he's not reproved for it. I mean, think of how that contrasts with the Apostle John, who was rebuked twice for falling down at the feet of an angel in the book of Revelation. We're going to have to skip some, some incidents. Skip ahead. I want to draw your attention finally to the text which we read from Isaiah 63. This may be the richest revelation of the threefold nature of God in the Old Testament. The context is that the Lord has, in steadfast love and goodness, become Israel's Savior. And we're told in the text, in all of their affliction, he was afflicted. And then, this is Isaiah 63, verse 9 says, the angel of his presence saved them. So there's an angel here. This is an angel, the angel, who is closely associated with the pillar and the cloud which followed Israel. This is the angel God sent before Israel to guide them through the wilderness into possession of the land. This angel drives out the enemies in Canaan. The angel is God's very presence with them. This angel was promised to Israel in her wilderness journey at Sinai in Exodus. Listen, Exodus 23. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. Right? Notice this. The angel brings Israel into Canaan. The angel pardons transgressions. The angel has God's name, God's divine glory, God's attributes in him. The angel's voice is God's voice. What the angel does, God does. In short, the angel is God and yet distinct from God. And it's through the angel, Isaiah says, that God becomes Israel's savior and redeemer. And you'll notice, as the text was read, there are three references in this passage to the Holy Spirit being grieved, being in the midst of God's people, and leading God's people to rest. God becomes the afflicted angel savior that gives the Spirit, right there in eight verses in Isaiah 63. All of this, beloved, in the midst of Israel's ferociously held, rigorous monotheism. Now, there are puzzles galore here. For those without the light of the New Testament, and even for those with the light of the New Testament. But you know what there never was? There never was a question. 
either in Israel or in the early church, there never was a question of there being two or three or anything but one God for Israel and the early church. Yet that one God, it turns out, is complicated. That monotheism is wild. That monotheism has plurality built right into it. So that's the theophanies. Finally, very briefly, the Messiah. The messianic promises themselves. They posit some distinctions in God, which somehow do not divide God. Right? This is the heart of the Trinitarian mystery, that the three persons exist in the one substance without dividing the substance or without being three gods. So we have Psalm 110, which was also read this morning. It is the most cited psalm in the New Testament. And it opens like this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here we have the Lord speaking to someone who David identifies as also being the Lord. And Jesus... Jesus, clearly understanding himself to be the Lord, the Lord to whom the Lord spoke, Jesus asks, in our gospel lesson from Matthew 22, Jesus asks this. It's a little Trinitarian theology between Jesus and the Pharisees right here. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? That's a setup. They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord. So now you have the Lord talking to the Lord. Sit at my right hand. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? He cites this very passage. So we have a whole string of messianic texts where the Messiah is God. Not just Psalm 110. But Isaiah 7, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, he's called the mighty God. In Micah 5, the Messiah is eternal. And yet somehow he's also distinct from God. Daniel 7, for example. Daniel 7 speaks of, this, of the Messiah as the son of man. Jesus' favorite self-designation. And in Daniel 7, this son of man is exalted over the nations, and receives everlasting dominion. Right In Matthew 25, the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne to judge the nations. So the Son of Man is fully human, and yet has divine prerogatives as Messiah. And associated, this is a key point, I think, and associated with the Messiah and his coming, there are a series of texts in Joel and in Ezekiel. We don't have time to look at them, but they speak of the Spirit being poured out in the future, in fullness, as a gift for all flesh. So, whether it be in the revelation about how God creates, or in the theophanies, which are startling and full of astonishing things, or in the promises concerning the Messiah and his spirit, the Old Testament shows us a deep, complex richness, a real plurality within the one God, within the unquestioned monotheism of Israel. So this should encourage us. 
This should encourage us as Bible readers. Especially as readers of the Old Testament. If you ask, well, what, what's the practical takeaway I would like to see happen from this sermon? It's this. I want you to be encouraged as a reader of the Old Testament. Right? This is a text of profound glimpses into the very being of God. It's not just a warm-up. The furniture is in the room. So, read the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is Christian scripture. You could call it the book of the Holy Trinity concealed. That's, that's an alternative name for the Old Testament. The book of the Holy Trinity concealed. You know, sometimes the biggest things are the most obvious things, the things we don't see. One of the biggest distinctions, and it was done instinctively, right? They didn't, they didn't have a meeting about it, right? It was done instinctively by the early church. One of the biggest things they did was they kept the Old Testament. They realized that whatever Jesus did, it was in continuity with that, right? You know, you would think with some moderns, there'd be like, ah, should we keep this Old Testament or not? I don't know. Maybe we just go with the new and we chuck the old. The early church's instinctive move to keep the Old Testament and read it as Christian scripture fulfilled in the Messiah is one of the most profound things the early church did. The new is indeed in the old concealed. And it's revealed gradually, progressively, until the full splendor shines forth in Christ and the Spirit in the new covenant. We are not projecting the Trinity back into the Old Testament. We are not overreading it. But the furniture's in the room. In the words of Gregory of Nazianzen, great 4th century theologian, Gregory says this about this progressive revelation. He says, <coughs> excuse me, The Old Testament proclaimed the Father clearly, but the Son more obscurely. The New Testament revealed the Son and gave us a glimpse of the divinity of the Spirit. Now the Spirit dwells among us and grants us a clearer vision of himself. It was not prudent when the divinity of the Father had not yet been confessed to proclaim the Son openly. And when the divinity of the Son was not yet admitted to add the Holy Spirit as an extra burden. He's talking about, you know, God was a wise teacher. He gave you the Father first, then the Son, then the Spirit. By, and this is Gregory again. By advancing and progressing from glory to glory the light of the Trinity will shine in ever more brilliant rays. Right? Sometimes you'll see modern scholars. They think the Trinity is a 4th century invention of the Council of Nicaea. Right? But it's a gradual unfolding of the light and splendor of God into greater and greater brilliance. God is a wise teacher. Right? He doesn't give you the whole thing in Genesis 1 or in Isaiah. But he gives us what we need, and then he gives us a little more, and then he gives us a little more. This is also an argument not just for reading the Old Testament, but for reading it in a kind of linear way, reading the whole Bible. So, may the Lord grant that with this rich Old Testament background and these deep roots, the light of the Trinity will shine forth in even greater brilliance among us. Amen.